Well, if you're new this morning, my name is Adam. Hi. Nice to meet you. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are studying in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, we've been studying the Gospel of Mark for about a year and a half now. Uh, I've only been here for a year of that time. And next week will be our final sermon in the Gospel of Mark. It will be our 42nd sermon. So this is a a long process we've been through, but it's been a great process, right? It's been wonderful to study this book. And and Mark was one of my favorite books already. I had gone through it with multiple groups. And and so now coming in here, this was the series we were already in and we've continued it on. And and next week is the the last one in the series. And we're already getting ready the books that we're gonna study next year. So we're super excited about that. But before we get into this morning's message, I just want us to take a moment and breathe. Just take a breath right now. Just, ah. What are the distractions in your life right now that might keep you from focusing on the word of God in a little bit? Think about that. Let's put them before God right now. Let's all bow our heads and just pray and say, God, what is, what is in my life right now that is keeping me from understanding where you want me to go, what you want me to learn, how you want me to grow? Ask God, Lord, what, what are the distractions in my life right now. Lord, would you pull those away from us? Would you help us to focus in on your word today and on what you want to teach us and communicate to us, God? I pray that you would open up this book and this story about Jesus and and what you did for us, Lord, on the cross in ways that we haven't thought about before. Help us to take it and apply it to our lives and grow in you and share it with others. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, last week, we were in Mark chapter 15. We're going to pick that up this week in Mark chapter 15. But last week, we talked about the difference between reacting and responding. When you face a difficult situation, do you react to it with all the raw emotions that come with that, or do you respond to it? And we talked about Jesus, how he faced an incredibly difficult situation, and how he reacted, and how he responded. When you see someone who responds to an incredibly difficult situation with a calmness and a a grace about them and a faith in God. Don't you just have so much respect for that person? Don't you just look at their life and go, wow, I can't believe what they just went through and how they're acting now. I've seen, have you seen that in people's lives? Have you seen those people where something happens to them that's terrible? Maybe an accident happens and it's someone else's fault and instead of hating that person and having bitterness against that person, they love them and pray for them and want what's best for them. That gracious response that people have instead of just reacting. There must be something different about those people, right? That have that kind of grace in a difficult circumstance. I love reading stories of missionaries because they're often filled with that kind of grace. Martin and Gracia Burnham were missionaries who were vacationing in the Philippines and were kidnapped by a group of rogue militants. They were forced to travel with this group for over a year as they tried to evade government forces who were hunting the group down. At times they went for 10 days without food. They only had dirty water to drink. 
They begged their captors for empty rice sacks, dirty, used, empty rice sacks, so they could lay them down on the jungle floor and have something between them and the ground and the creepy critters that were all over the ground. Gracia said one morning she woke up and as she was getting up, this big snake slithered out from under her rice sack. She had been keeping him warm all night. That's what they went through in the jungle. And one time their group managed to attack a government troop and one of the individuals killed was a medic. And so Martin and Gracia managed to get a hold of the medical bag and the supplies that they desperately needed because there's a, there's a whole lot to this story about some of the terrible things that happened to them and the conditions that they faced. And they were able to get bandages and, and medicines that they desperately needed and they were able to hide them on their person so they would have those available to them. And as the months continued, there was one guy in particular who was always in a really bad mood. Every time they would see him, he'd be in a bad attitude. And one day they noticed that before he got into his bad mood for the day, he would be rubbing his head like this. And they realized he's having headaches. That's why he's in such a bad mood. So Martin went to his secret stash, pulled out a pain pill and brought it to this guy and said, here, take this. And it took the guy's headache away. And so every time they would see him rubbing his head, they would go get a pain pill, they would give it to him, and he started to become kind of a friend. And Martin and Gracia started to love and care for and even serve their captors. How amazing is that? One day the leaders of this group called Martin and Gracia over and told them that someone had paid a ransom for them. But these leaders were greedy. They wanted more money. And so they said, we're not going to release you. We're going to ask for more. And that night, Gracia went to lay down on her rice sack, absolutely defeated and discouraged. And as she was drifting off to sleep, Martin nudged her and said, Gracia, aren't you so thankful that when Jesus paid a ransom for us, it was enough? There's something different about that man, right? To respond in that way, with that kind of grace, in that kind of situation, with what they were dealing with. And 2,000 years ago, there was a man who faced all sorts of false accusations in three different trials. He was beaten. He had chunks torn off of his body. He was abused. He was paraded out in front of his people. And his own people shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And as we're going to see today, Jesus went through that process willingly. He was not forced. He gave up his life willingly. He was not forced for people that had not even been born yet. There's something different about that man. I have three goals for us this morning. Three things that I hope you'll take with you when you leave, they're actually written on your weekly program. So if you want to take notes, it's all there. The first one is that we understand what happened here when Jesus went to the cross. Maybe for some of you, you've never actually studied this before. And so a lot of what we talk about today is going to be new to you, and I hope that it will fill in some gaps and help you to understand who is this Jesus, what did he do, and why do we love him so much? What is our obsession with Jesus? At the end of this morning, I hope you'll have a better picture of that. 
And for those of you that have studied this before, my hope for you is that you will better understand what happened. Maybe there are some details that you've just glossed over before and you'll be able to pull out some of that and there'll be fresh insights for you that you can walk away from and realize just what Jesus did for you. My second goal is that you would understand its significance. See, there is no other event in human history that has had this kind of life-changing impact on the world. Nothing else even comes close. So why was this such a big deal? We're gonna talk about that today. And my third goal is that we understand our response. What difference should understanding what happened and understanding its significance have in your life and my life today? We're gonna start with goal number one to understand exactly what happened from this gospel, Mark's perspective. We're gonna be in Mark chapter 15. So you can turn there if you want in your Bibles. Mark 15, we're gonna start in verse 21, right where we left off last week. You can also use the YouVersion Bible app. You'll find us there under events in First Free Church or go to efree.org slash Bible and there's a link with all the scriptures there. And that way, if you leave here today and you can't remember and you didn't write one of them down, you can always go back and look it up and you'll have the verses there to study. We're gonna start in verse 21 of Mark 15. Let's read it together and I'll make some notes as we go. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, that's in Africa, was coming in from the countryside just then. He was coming in from the countryside and the soldiers were in the process of taking Jesus out of the city at this point because executions could not happen inside the city. They had to happen outside the city. So Simon's coming in. Jesus and the soldiers are going out And the soldiers forced him, Simon, to carry Jesus' cross. So they took this guy coming into the city, they grabbed him, and they forced him to turn around, go back the other way, right back outside the city to a place that he would not have wanted to go. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now it's very unusual that Simon's sons would be mentioned here unless they were somehow known to the people who would be reading this account. And that's why many scholars believe that Alexander and Rufus actually became leaders and were well known to the early church. The Apostle Paul writes about a Rufus in Romans chapter 16 and says he's a part of the church. And there's this guy named Polycarp who was the Bishop of Smyrna. He was mentored by the Apostle John and Polycarp wrote his own letter to the Philippian church. It's not the Philippians that we have in our Bible, but it's another letter. And in that letter, he mentions the apostles and Paul and a couple of other prominent leaders and Rufus as a leader in the church, a well-known leader. So it may be that this is the same guy. And many scholars think that, that Alexander and Rufus and maybe Simon and maybe their whole family became believers in Jesus because of this experience right here. Verse 22, and they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means, they translate it for us here, the place of the skull. It could be that this area looked like a skull. Or it could be that there were lots of skulls around because of all the executions that took place there. There's a local tradition that the giant Goliath, whom David beheaded, was buried there. His skull, his big skull was buried. So it might have been called the place of the skull. We don't know. We don't know why, but it's called the place of of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. 
This is one of those little details that in the past, I've probably read over it many, many times and thought very little of it. What difference does it make that Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh? Furthermore, what difference does it make that he refused it? Who cares? Why would this be included in Mark's gospel? Well, the reason is actually pretty incredible and it's pretty significant. Wine mixed with myrrh had a pain-relieving effect. Remember that Jesus is about to have his hands and his feet nailed to a cross. And when that happens, a normal person is going to squirm and fight back. They're not going to allow their wrists to be pierced so easily. And you know, and I know, that sometimes the anticipation of pain can be worse than the pain itself, right? When you're about to go through a painful experience, sometimes it's just the the psychological trauma and impact of knowing that's going to happen that can be even worse than the actual pain. And so what would happen is these guys would be ready to be crucified and they'd have to get these soldiers together to hold them down so that they could line them up and drive the nails through. But this wine mixed with myrrh had a pain relieving effect. I talked with one of our doctors in the church this week who said it has nerve deadening properties. And so it could relax them and it could relieve some of the pain they were already in to keep them from struggling. And so scholars think that this wine mixed with myrrh was meant to make life easier on the soldiers. It might have sped up the asphyxiation process that would happen on the cross. You see, when someone died on a cross, they didn't just die from the loss of blood or the piercing or anything like that. They died because they were hanging there and they would eventually get to the point where they couldn't take a breath. And they'd have to push themselves up to take a breath and then go back down. And I'm not going to go into all the details of describing what that is. Some of you have probably heard that before and how, how gruesome and painful it can be. But the point is that when they lost all of their strength and the, and the blood was flowing out of them and they couldn't lift themselves up anymore, they would die because they couldn't breathe. And so this wine mixed with myrrh might have sped up that process, but it would have done something else too. It would have made it easier to line them up, hold them down, and drive in the nails. So the soldiers who were just mocking and abusing Jesus were not doing this to be merciful. They were not offering him medicine to ease his pain. They were offering him medicine to make their job easier so they wouldn't have to struggle with him. Jesus refused the medicine. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus not take something that would make this process at least a little more bearable for him? There are a few reasons that we have. First of all, Jesus had made a vow that he would not drink wine again until the kingdom. He said, I will not drink wine again. This was at the Last Supper. We covered this just a few weeks ago. I will not drink wine again until I drink it new in the kingdom of God, he said. And so this was a temptation for him a temptation to ease a little bit of his pain and he refused it because he vowed, I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God. This also means that he felt the full force of every bit of the pain of this punishment, this torture. He could have eased that pain just a little, but he felt every wince, every wound, every splinter in his body, he felt it all. But what I think is most profound about this is that Jesus didn't squirm or fight when they went to put in the nails. They didn't have to hold him down. The soldiers were prepared for a struggle. 
They offered him this wine mixed with myrrh that was meant to loosen him up a little bit, make him easier to deal with, and he refused it. And I'll bet that they thought, "Uh uh-oh, we might have a fighter here. And they went to get him ready, and here's what I think happened. I think that Jesus just held out his arms and exposed his wrists right where the nails needed to go. One soldier probably grabbed an arm just in case, but there was no struggle. There was no cursing. There was something different about this man. Verse 24. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. This was normal for crucifixions. This was something they often did and it probably wouldn't even be included here except that Psalm twenty-two eighteen says, they divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. You see, we're supposed to understand that there are connections to the cross all throughout the Bible and that everything is kind of pointing to this point, this sacrifice that Jesus is making for us and is woven throughout the Bible for us to see this is all one work, one tapestry of God showing us what he is doing in this world. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Now, John tells us that the religious leaders tried to get that sign changed because in an ironic twist, Pilate actually gave Jesus the title King of the Jews. He put it on the sign and said, this is the King of the Jews. And so the religious leaders came to Pilate and they actually said to him over in the Gospel of John, change that, change it to he said he was the King of the Jews. And do you know what Pilate said? Do you know what he said back to them? He said, I have written what I have written. And that's it. And so Jesus was given the title, the King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. The other gospels give us a lot more information about those two. We're not gonna dive into that today because we have more than enough to study together. But I I wanna point out one thing about you, about the next verse. How many of you are missing verse 28? Raise your hand if you're missing verse 28 in your Bible. This is actually just to see how many of you are reading your Bible. How many of you have a footnote after verse 28? Anybody have a footnote after verse 28? Okay. So a lot of you are missing it. A lot of you have a footnote. Let me explain why. Because if we just glossed over this without covering it, I think it would be confusing for some people, at least the ones who are really paying attention to those verse numbers. Back in the 16th century, Verse numbers were added to the Bible. Before that, they didn't really have these verse numbers. They had chapter divisions, but not the verse numbers. And at the time, the manuscripts they had available did not show um, the oldest copy that we have today of Mark. So as time goes on, we actually are getting better and better translations. Did you know that? We're get, our translations are actually getting more accurate because we're discovering more manuscripts that are older and better than some of the ones that were available back in the Middle Ages, for instance. And so some of our translations are actually getting really, really close to the original, much closer than the ones that came from a few hundred years ago. And so when verse numbers were added, the manuscripts they had available had this extra verse in them. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, he was counted among those who were rebels. Now this phrase is in the oldest manuscripts of Luke, but it's not in the oldest manuscripts of Mark. 
And so translators think that at some point somebody had a copy of Luke and a copy of Mark and they were copying Mark to make it available for future generations. And they said, hey, we really like this line over here in Luke. Maybe we should include it over here. And you know what often happened is it would get included in a margin. It would get included as sort of a side note on there. And then future copyists might say, you know what? That's really good. We're just going to put it in line. And, and over time, it would just become like, oh, this is part of the, part of the document that gets handed down. But that's kind of how some of these things work. So if your translation does not have verse 28 or has a footnote behind verse 28 that says some manuscripts do not include or oldest manuscripts do not include, that's a good thing. I just wanted you to know that because if we just passed that by, some of you would go home today and think, what is wrong with my Bible? What was in that verse that they took out? Now you know. It's in Luke. It's just not in the oldest versions of Mark. So verse 29 The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself. Come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Darkness in the middle of the day is the first of four miracles that Mark records here for us. Four extraordinary things that happened that show there is something really different about this Jesus and how he died. Darkness is very important in the Bible. It's a theme. It has to do with judgment and sin and evil. Isaiah and Joel and other prophets talk about darkness in conjunction with judgment. Darkness in the middle of the day was one of the ten plagues of Egypt. When Jesus is talking about the place of eternal punishment for those who do not believe in him, he refers to it as outer darkness. And God here is preparing to place the sin of the world onto Jesus and to judge him for what the rest of us have done. And so this darkness is to prepare for the judgment. Then at three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. It means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? This separation between God and Jesus is the second miracle. This had never happened before. Jesus had never been separated from God before. And as bad as the physical punishment was, as bad as that torture was, it was nothing compared to the spiritual torment of being separated from the God he was always connected to. And I've got to tell you, I have no idea how to make sense of that. I don't have a clue how to say that the Godhead three in one are all united in three different persons and somehow Jesus was separated from the others. I don't get it. I'll be honest with you. But it's what the Bible says happened. It's what Jesus says happened. God, why have you abandoned me? You see, as all of that sin was placed onto Jesus, God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit can have no fellowship, no relationship with sin. And so there had to be a separation from Jesus. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians. He says, for God made Christ, who never sinned, 
to be the offering for our sin. Some versions say to be sin for us so that we could be made right with God through Christ. How exactly does that work? I don't know, but I'm so thankful it does. Jesus took our sin onto himself. John says he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. God put our sins onto Jesus, billions of eternal punishments placed upon him, the lies of Abraham, the sinful anger of Moses, the adultery of David, the unfaithfulness of all the Israelites, and everything wrong that you and I have ever done was placed onto him. Everything wrong that you or I will say or think or do this week was placed onto Jesus on the cross. And God separated from him because he can have nothing to do with sin. And I believe the primary reason Jesus cries out is so that we would know it happened in that instance. Otherwise, how would we know? God, why have you abandoned me? And we think, how is that even possible? But that is the kind of spiritual torment that Jesus went through for us. Look at the next verse. 35, some of the bystanders misunderstood him. And they thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. And this again was not an act of mercy. This was most likely vinegar that was used for sanitary reasons, not a clean substance. This was something disgusting, again meant to mock him. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry, and breathed his last. This is actually the third miracle. Because remember at this point, when someone is about to die on the cross, they die from asphyxiation. They die because they don't have the strength to lift themselves up again so that they could even take a breath, let alone give out a loud cry. So what's happening here is that Jesus still has the strength. And Mark is showing us that he still has the strength to give out a loud cry, and then he breathed out his last. He gave up his life. He could have kept going, but he gave it up willingly. It wasn't actually taken from him by the cross. He gave it up. He said this earlier in his ministry. This is in John chapter 10. He said, the father loves me because I sacrifice my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my father has commanded. There's something very different about this man. And then there's another miracle. Look at verse 38. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the fourth miracle. Josephus, the historian, writes about this. He says that this curtain was 80 feet tall. It was 24 feet wide. It was several inches thick. Incredibly strong curtain. This is not the type of thing you want hanging on your bedroom window at home. It would bring the whole wall down. This was a heavy-duty curtain that was sitting in the temple that was guarding the holiest place in the temple, the Holy of Holies, where once a year the high priest would enter in there and their fear was that if he entered in there with sin in his life, God would strike him dead. 
So if he came in there and, and he had sin in his life, God would strike him dead. And they needed to know that so that they could pull him out somehow. And so they actually had these, this old, ancient vital signs method. They put uh, bells around him so it would jingle and they would know if he was still alive. And then they tied a rope around him so that if he did die, they could pull him out and not have to go in and risk dying themselves. That's how revered this place was that this curtain separated from everyone else. The curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. This was not man's doing. It's very clear. This is God torn from the top to the bottom, from God to man, the curtain torn in two. And if you've ever heard a phrase about the veil being torn, God or Jesus tearing the veil in two, that's what this is referring to. That veil, that curtain that was in the temple. The curtain represented the separation between God and man. And it was torn in half when Jesus died on the cross and paid that penalty for us. What's even more amazing about this is that God did it at three in the afternoon. What's so special about three o'clock in the afternoon? Well, at three in the afternoon, the priests would be doing their daily rituals right in front of the curtain. Prayers and incense, going about their business like they did every day, except that today they had just experienced three hours of darkness. And now they're in front of this curtain doing their thing and all of a sudden they hear this noise. It's coming from way up there. It's the giant curtain. And it's just being ripped in two from the top to the bottom. And now they are staring into the holy place that they have never seen before. None of these guys were ever supposed to see or go in there. And yet that veil is torn. Can you imagine how frightened they must have been to see that place exposed? The author of Hebrews writes about this moment. He says, so then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Jesus was tested in every way imaginable, especially on the cross. He could have taken an off ramp at any moment. He could have called down the angels. He could have gotten off of there. He could have at least taken a little bit of wine to ease his pain, but no, He did not give in to any of the temptation. And so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Jesus faced all of the temptations and testing that we did and yet he never sinned. And so when he died and that curtain was torn in two, what that represented was the separation between us and God which was removed. And so now we can come before God boldly, enter into his presence. We don't have to go through a priest or a pastor or a father. We have a direct connection to God. That's an amazing thing that Jesus did for us because Jesus represents us as our high priest before God. There's something different about this man. So back to Mark 15. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died and the circumstances surrounding this, he exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. Everything else in Mark's gospel has been leading up to this point when a Gentile, an abuser, a mocker, an enemy would look at Jesus dying on the cross and would acknowledge not just that he's a Messiah, not just that he's a revolutionary or a rescuer, but that this man is the son of God. It's an incredible admission. 
some of the some of the women who were there oh I missed one Mark 1 this is the beginning of the of the book Mark 1 1 look at this this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah the son of God this is what Mark wants us to get it's what he wants us to understand there's something different about this man he's not an ordinary man and now an enemy acknowledges it some of the women were there watching from a distance including Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. They had been followers of Jesus and had cared for him while he was in Galilee. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. This all happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, as evening approached. Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Some versions say he had courage because this was not an easy thing for him to do. This was a bold and daring thing for him to do. He went to Pilate. Joseph was an honored member of the high council and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead because usually crucifixion took much longer and yet Jesus, because he gave up his own life, it was much shorter. So he called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead, so Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. Joseph bought a long sheet of linen cloth. Then he took Jesus' body down from the cross, wrapped it in the cloth, laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. See, we need to understand what happened here. We need to understand what Jesus went through for us. We need to understand why some of these things took place. And then we need to understand their significance. The Apostle Paul would write about this later in Colossians. He said, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. This is God in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil and thoughts and actions, just like that curtain separated the people from God's presence in the Holy of Holies. We are separated from God by our evil thoughts and actions, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Can you think about that for a minute? The fact that you, who Paul says were enemies of God, separated by your sinful thoughts and actions and all the wrong that we do because of what we just talked about, Jesus dying on the cross, that we can enter into his presence boldly, we don't have any separation between us and God, and we can actually stand before him without a single fault. Aren't you thankful that we can stand before God without a single fault? Because Jesus took all of our faults onto him. What Jesus did on the cross, what he did for us. So what is our response? We need to understand our response. Some of you may be far away from God. You may have never trusted in what Jesus did for you on the cross. 
And so you're going through life without this connection to God. You, you don't feel like you are in his presence and never have been because you have never placed your trust in Jesus. Paul says this in Romans chapter 10. He says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. What he's saying is that we have to believe in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross his rising from the dead. We have to trust in the sacrifice that he made for us, not in anything that we can do because it is nothing that we do that saves us. It is only what Jesus did on that cross. It is his death and the fact that he rose again means that he has the power to overcome sin and death so he can overcome it for us as well. We have a risen savior, a savior who can save us from sin and give us that access to God, but we have to believe in him. Maybe there's some of you here today who have never done that. Maybe this is new to you, or maybe you've heard it many times, but you've never actually taken that step to trust in Jesus Christ. At the end of this service, we're gonna have people down here who you can come and talk to and ask any questions that you have, and we'll be happy to explain to you what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's something that's best done over a dialogue so that we can communicate a little bit and ask questions and make sure that you understand what this means and what this is and you can ask your questions. So come up and see us after the service if you want to trust in Jesus and have a relationship with him and be faultless before God, boldly coming before his throne. No separation between you and God. Now for many of us, we've trusted in Jesus for a long time. But we haven't always taken seriously what Jesus did for us on the cross in our everyday lives. Because this should change the way we live. This should change what we do. After knowing what Jesus went through for us, after experiencing it together this morning, how can we not think every day of the sacrifice Jesus made and and thank him for it? How can we go on sinning and not realize that that is sin that is placed onto Jesus so that he can pay the penalty for what we're doing right now? How can we go on sinning? How can we spend so much time on our agenda and our priorities when he did this for us and he has called us to live a different kind of life? Can you really keep quiet about it? knowing what Jesus did for you and me, can you really keep quiet about it and not tell other people about the new life that you have in Christ? See, what Jesus did on the cross, it should change us. It should change our everyday lives. It should change our priorities. It should change the things that we do, not just today, but tomorrow. Because there's something different about this man. He's our Messiah. He's the Son of God. Let's all bow our heads in prayer. Reflect for a moment on what we've heard this morning from God's word. Jesus, this is one of those messages that's not the most fun to deliver. It's horrible. It's horrible what you went through for us. So God, we remember it not to relish in it, but we remember it to be thankful for it. To thank you for coming to this earth, for living a life as a smelly human, 
for being willing to die a death on the cross and face all the temptation and persecution and abuse and testing so that no one could say you had it easy, so that no one could say you just made it happen without any effort or difficulty. But what you suffered for us and the temptation you went through, enduring every possible temptation for sin and yet not sinning and then taking all of our sin onto you, Lord, it's, it's incredible. So God, we thank you. We thank you for your sacrifice for us. We thank you that you care about us enough to to want to be involved in our lives today, to want to tear that separation apart so that we can be connected with you, so that we can spend eternity with you, so that you can impact our daily lives. And I pray for everyone in this room and I pray for everyone watching online and who will watch online that God, you would touch our hearts and help us to be different people because of what you did for us. And because of the knowledge of your sacrifice, may we live out our lives differently so that there will be something different about us too. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.